Welcome to the Dr. Lori Marbus podcast. Today I'm interviewing two amazing people that really don't need an introduction. Um, I don't even know where to begin, but I have Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn and his lovely wife, Ann Cryell Esselstyn. How are you both doing today? We're delighted to be with you. Great. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me. I know we've had some uh, schedule changes and stuff, and I appreciate you guys taking time out of your evening. So, you know, I really like what I want to do with you two is be a little bit different. Um, I know all the science and a lot of my audience does, but I want to know how you guys implemented this so many years ago because you've been doing this since what 1984 is this right eating this way so i want to know the story of how that evolved like when you came home or how did that you guys decide to do that i mean what's your personal story with this journey well in the in the uh, in the 1970s my major responsibilities at the cleveland clinic were i was chairman of the breast cancer task force and Head of the section on thyroid and parathyroid surgery. But by the late 1970s, I was getting pretty darn disillusioned with the fact that for no matter how many women uh, I was doing breast surgery, I was doing absolutely nothing for the next unsuspecting victim. And this led to a bit of uh, global research, and it was quite striking to see that there were a number of cultures where breast cancer rates were 30 and 40 times less frequent than the United States. And it was interesting that if you looked at Kenya, for instance, that was the case. Uh, in uh, rural Japan, in the 1950s, uh, breast cancer was very infrequently identified, identified. And yet as soon as the Japanese women would migrate to the United States by the second and third generation, they now had the same rate of breast cancer as their Caucasian counterpart. And perhaps even more compelling was uh, cancer of the prostate. In uh, 1958, in the entire nation of Japan, autopsy proven, how many deaths were there from cancer of the prostate? 18. By 1978, they were up to 137, which still pales in comparison to the 28,000 who will die this year in this country. But nevertheless, I thought there might be more bang for the buck if we looked at uh, the leading killer of women and men in Western civilization, cardiovascular disease, because in this global review, there were any number of cultures where cardiovascular, that's, that's, our, that's our fancy alarm clock, which has a bird. And so and when it's five o'clock, there'll be five birds. <laughs> yeah, you, Lori, you've never had this before on your podcast. <laughs> so, no, I have not. Thank you. That was lovely. And I'm actually going to leave that in because that's really funny. <laughs> at any rate, the, uh, it was very impressive to think that there were these cultures that had really virtually no cardiovascular disease. And the common denominator was that they were all eating a plant-based nutrition essentially without oil. So that sort of became the, uh, the goal. And... Uh, then I, I knew I was going to start this research with a, uh, a small number of uh, patients. But what happened was uh, I was a cholesterolholic. I mean, I grew up on an Aberdeen Angus beef farm and a dairy farm, and it was very uh, challenging to me to think that I was going to give up uh, meat and dairy. 
But I just knew that I was going to do this. But the question was when. And uh, as Dr. Prochaska from Rhode Island has very clearly demonstrated in people with smoking, when you make a lifestyle change, you go through a number of phases. It's pre-contemplation, contemplation, action, and then maintenance. And I was probably somewhere over here around contemplation when it was in April of 1984 when Ann and I took a trip to New Haven, Connecticut for a surgical meeting. And for some reason, the, the papers were very boring. The weather was kind of rotten. But there's always a banquet uh, after these conferences. And at the banquet, a waitress put a plate of roast beef in front of me where the roast beef was just draped over the side. I just looked at it and I said, this is it. And Ann looked at me and said, what do you mean? You're not going to eat that? And I said, nope. So she said, well, then I'll Come have. on. He, I, I never did do that. <laughs> uh, Ann's mother had died at age 52 of breast cancer. And two weeks after that meeting in New Haven, her sister came down with breast cancer. And then she looked at me and said, I'm with you. I'm with you. So that's when we started. Uh, and we ourselves did this for a year. Uh, my cholesterol kind of plummeted. And then I really was confident we knew how to do this. And so in uh, the summer of 1985, I went to the Department of Cardiovascular Medicine and uh, asked if I could have about 24 patients that were ill with cardiovascular disease. But uh, the idea <clears throat> was that since I had still to carry out my surgical obligations, this could not be a very large study. But I was concerned that the, the rock upon which this study was most likely to flounder was lack of patient compliance. Now, I was not a trained psychologist. And so the mantra that I used for these patients was the same mantra that I had been using for my cancer patients that I had learned years ago from a wonderful uh, West Coast surgeon, Bert Dunphy, who had said that patients with cancer are not afraid to suffer. Patients with cancer are not afraid to die. But patients with cancer are afraid of being abandoned by their family or by their physician. So for the first five years, I saw every one of those patients every two weeks in the office, went over every morsel they ate, we checked their weight, their blood pressure, and drew their cholesterol. By the end of five years, I was getting a little more confident, and I stretched it out to once a month. And at the end of 10 years, which was now making it with the longest study of its type. Uh, they were pretty well on autopilot, and I stretched it out to quarterly. So these patients were pretty sick. As a matter of fact, my late brother-in-law used to say that these were Essie's walking dead. And, uh, they had failed their first or second bypass. They had failed their first or second angioplasty. They were too sick for these procedures, or they had refused. And Five were told by their expert cardiologists they would not uh, live out the year. They all made it beyond 20 years. And we really began to see some exciting things. And not only did the disease progression halt, but we began to see, at times, significant re reversal. Wow. So now you, I, I mean, it's incredible in itself, but I love the SE's Walking Dead. It's just too funny. Um, 
how did you prepare the food at home? I mean, did you have children still then at home or no? I mean, how, how did you transition? Because your entire family eats this way now, correct? Two. Our youngest was home, um, and really there was nobody. The only person out there that was uh, Mary McDougall had uh, – they were sort of – but, you know, there was no food. There was no – we didn't know anybody, and the McDougals were across the country, and that you know that was pre-the internet. So we just kind of uh, struck out, you know, did what we did. We had a lot of rice and beans. We still do. We still live on rice and beans. But it evolved uh, slowly. Wow. So as far as the patients, how did you teach the patients? I mean, did you have cooking classes with them, a protocol? I mean, how do you go from learning it yourself to transitioning your patients? Again, that's a, that's a learning experience because you really, the rock upon which this study was most likely to founder, as I said, was lack of patient compliance. And so not only did we, by, by seeing them with that degree of frequency, the, uh, and one of the things that we uh, interjected that we thought was important, we would meet at our house usually every uh, 12 weeks or so for the first several years where everybody would have to bring a legal meal and we would warm it up and sort of have a nice potluck together where we would exchange stories. Everybody get to know each other better and, uh, <clears throat> and reinforce and share recipes. I mean, the thing is, doing this, if you get it, I, it, you don't need cooking lessons. You don't need anything. I mean, you, anybody can do it. Uh, I mean, if you don't know how to cook rice, I mean, it's lovely to get a rice cooker. But um, cooking is helpful. It, it's wonderful. It, it makes people sort of have a path. But we found that when they really understood the science that they could do it. They came up with their own wonderful recipes. Wow, because wow. that's the one thing that I hear often from patients is, wow, I don't know how to cook this. So I was like, well, you actually do. You're just changing what you're putting in the pots. I mean, it's really not that hard, um, but I get overwhelmed. What are some of the excuses that you might have heard? I mean, or did they have any because they were so ill? I mean, were they already kind of pre-selected, ready to go, like you were saying? They actually, you see, the thing about this, especially the patients who have chest pain or angina, uh, they begin to feel better so soon that that they literally hook themselves. Uh, but there are, uh, there are a number of techniques that, that we've evolved. With that original group, since they all live in close proximity, that is, you know, within... 10 or 15 miles of the uh, of the clinic. It was easy to see them on that kind of regular basis. However, that's totally transitioned with what has happened in my life when uh, after the uh, movie Forks Over Knives and and some of my publications uh, and the fact that I do a fair amount of, of speaking uh, around the United States and Canada. Uh, now about 85% of our patients were coming from from outside of the state of Ohio. They simply can't come and, and stay in Cleveland for days at a time. So we found out we were, these are people that wanted, they, they were just as in, as in need of this kind of 
meaningful information as some of our earlier uh, research patients were. But we find that if we give these patients respect, and by that I mean the only way I know to really give a patient respect is to give them our time. So what we're doing now, since this group is coming from so far away, we have felt we had to wrap all this up in one single intensive counseling seminar, five and a half hours, which we try to usually limit to no more than 10 or 12, always with their spouse or significant other who must come if possible. And they, they the spouse, comes for free. <clears throat> and at the seminar, they're going to learn all about what it is that they have done to create the disease and how it is that they are going to be empowered as the locus of control to halt and reverse this disease. And at the same time, everybody is given a very hefty notebook. In that notebook is going to be a copy of every PowerPoint that I used during the seminar, several of our scientific articles, a 44-page handout with many additional uh, recipes that add to the 240 in the two books that we provide, there's a wonderful hour and a quarter presentation from Ann, uh, who has had 30 years experience acquiring and preparing plant-based foods, dealing with reading ingredients, travel and restaurants. And then everybody receives a DVD of the entire seminar that I filmed from an earlier one. So should they go home and get forgetful or rusty, they can flip this on and get themselves back up to speed. Uh, then we always seem to have two or three local or regional participants who've had a previous successful experience share their story with those who are in attendance who can then say to themselves, listen, if he or she can do this, I can do this. Then we answer questions of a delightful plant-based meal and then stay in touch as necessary through email or phone call. Now, I should mention that uh, before I ever see those patients I get a list from my secretary, usually about uh, 12 or 14 days beforehand. And then I insist personally on calling every one of them myself so that I can get my arms around their story and at the same time provide them with an opportunity to ask questions of me. So that coming to the seminar, we have a very strong platform from which we can all move forward. Now, so that means that, that they've had a chance to interact with me uh, a week or two beforehand uh, and then again at the five-and-a-half-hour seminar. Then they're free to call us with any questions they may have. And <clears throat> I think that that truly goes a long way to having them understand that, my God, if this physician is spending so much time uh, with us, this must be pretty important. And also I should share that the group meeting is so much more powerful than doing it one-on-one. -on -one. And I think the place where almost all physicians seem to drop the ball when they say to Dr. Esselstyn, I don't know how you get a 90% compliance when uh, I, I rarely find a patient who I, I said, I'm, I bet you you're just giving them the usual 12 or 15 minute office visit. I said, I can tell you the chances of that, that succeeding are about zero. And what I would suggest therefore, and this is what a number of physicians who have apprenticed with us take away. If they're willing to take off Wednesday afternoon or maybe even Saturday morning 
for the panel of, of their patients, maybe 10 or 12, again, with their spouse or significant other, and, uh, you know, give them uh, the full uh, the full Monte. <laughs> give, give them the, the four, four and a half hours or what have you that it takes to have them fully understand. And there's one particular area in the presentation that I think more than anything else that absolutely hooks them. And that's when you talk about the, uh, the to them to the endothelial cell. Do you want me to go into that at all? You sure can. Whatever you think will hook this audience, go for it. Well, uh, I think that if if the truth be known, we in this nation have built a billion-dollar health industry around an illness that does not even exist in half the planet. Okay. I mean, coronary artery heart disease is nothing more than a toothless paper tiger that need never, ever exist. And if it does exist, it need never progress. All experts would agree that where this disease has its beginning, its onset, its inception, is when we progressively injure and compromise the life jacket and the guardian of our blood vessels, which happens to be that delicate innermost lining of the artery, the endothelium. And what makes the endothelium so remarkable is its molecule that it produces, nitric oxide, that marvelous gas that has a number of truly remarkable functions. One, nitric oxide keeps all of the cellular elements within our bloodstream flowing smoothly like Teflon rather than Velcro, keeps things from getting sticky. Number two, Nitric oxide is the strongest blood vessel dilator in the body. When you climb stairs, the arteries to your heart, to your legs, they widen, they dilate nitric oxide. Three, nitric oxide will keep and protect the wall of the artery from becoming thick and stiff or inflamed, protects us from high blood pressure, hypertension. Number four, now this is the absolute key. A healthy, normal amount of nitric oxide protects us from ever developing blockages or plaque. But literally, everybody on the planet, including those in California or Florida or Georgia or whatever, who has plaque and blockages, have it because that particular patient has so trashed so injured, so turned their endothelial cells into a train wreck that they don't have enough capacity to make nitric oxide. You don't have enough nitric oxide to protect themselves. But the good news here, this is not a malignancy. This is a completely benign foodborne illness. And if you get those patients to understand that never again should they have anything pass through their lips that is going to worsen their train wreck, the endothelial cell begins to recover. It makes enough nitric oxide that you can stop this disease and often see significant reversal. Now, <clears throat> that I, I cannot emphasize enough because what are the foods that every time they pass our lips, we injure the endothelial cell? They are. Any oil. Olive oil, corn oil, soybean oil, safflower oil, sunflower, coconut oil, palm oil, oil in a cracker, oil in a piece of bread, oil in a salad dressing. Oil injures the cells, as does 
anything with a mother or a face, meat, fish, chicken, fowl, turkey, and anything that is dairy, milk, cream, butter, cheese, ice cream, yogurt, and exceptions of sugar, sugary drinks, Cokes, Pepsi, Diet Cola, cakes, pies, cookies in excess, or stevia, agave, maple syrup, molasses, and honey. And I don't like coffee with caffeine. Tea with caffeine, yes. Decaf, okay, but not coffee with caffeine. Now, uh, there's one other, uh, I mean, that's what is so important because I, the, the excuses that I used to hear, but nobody will ever dare use an excuse with me. Now, I used to hear, well, gosh, Dr. Russellston, uh, I was uh, at this dinner party and uh, that was all they had. I said, what the hell does that mean? That was all they had. You mean to tell me you felt it was important to take that train wreck of endothelial cells and destroy it even further because you didn't have the interpersonal skills to tell your hostess that you had a doctor in Cleveland who was the meanest SOB on the planet, wouldn't let you go to these dinner parties and eat foods that was going to further destroy your endothelial. Or they can try this, this is another one, I said, look, when you go to uh, out to eat, and it's got to be extremely careful, if you go out to eat, first thing you do is you turn in your seat, take your glasses off, look the waiter or the waitress in the eye and tell them, look, you must understand I am deathly allergic to a drop of any oil. Now, that doesn't work. The other one you'd like to have. Now, I know that some of you are going to eat out, but let's be clear about this. There are four reasons to go out to eat. One, you don't have to do the cooking. Two, you don't have to do the dishes. Three, the ambiance. Four, the companionship. But you never, ever go out to eat to further destroy more endothelial cells. Anybody have any questions for me on that? I want to where we're all clear, because this is how you are empowered, not the pills you're taking, which don't have anything to do with the causation of the illness, nor the stents, nor the bypasses. The only thing that has to do with the causation of the illness is when you decide to restore your endothelial capacity to make nitric oxide, and don't you even dream of ever, ever again injuring the endothelial cells further. Because when that happens, yes, I confess I'm being a little bit mean, but I've, to, but I've been told that I'm not as mean that I'm <laughs> that I'm not as mean as I look. So the the key here. He means he's not as mean as he sounds. He looks key, nice. The key here is to absolutely restore and respect your endothelial cells. That is fantastic. Exactly right. And it goes back to what you were saying, taking time with the patients. I, I don't know if you recall on December 12th, I believe it was 2013, there was a horrible snowstorm in Cleveland. It was your birthday. And I came out and spent the day with you at that five and a half hour intensive program. And um, it was amazing, just like you described. And I took home that packet and I utilized that for, you know, trying to emulate a similar program. So we started a lifestyle medicine clinic and 60 people started and only one dropped out. So, you know, taking what you said 
works and they have these improvements so that was a few years ago i've continued to refine and do well and but you're exactly right we we owe it and i tell people now it's like you know we need a different doctor for a healthy america than we have now we have doctors for a sick america we don't have a doctor for a healthy america and that's what we need to work on so that's exactly right but i gotta know you have all your kids and all your grandkids right eat this way is that right Yes. How did you do that? If they're already out of the house and convince them to do that. I mean, I really want to know how you did this because it took me five years to get my daughter to do this. When I was, uh, the reason, I guess the reason I'm so passionate uh, about nutrition is that uh, even perhaps more so than my surgical career is that I see this uh, as the greatest tool that medicine has ever had in its toolbox. And it's, it's just as if the heavens have opened and said, listen, Here's something that you can do. We're going to give you this pile of delicious food, and it is going to absolutely annihilate chronic disease. 75 to 80 percent gone. It's just not heart disease. It's strokes. It's vascular dementia. It's diabetes. It's hypertension. It's Crohn's disease. It's ulcerative colitis. It's diabetes. Uh, it's a uh, rheumatoid arthritis and lupus and multiple sclerosis and allergies and asthma and kidney disease. I mean, come on. Where did you ever have anything like that before? And it gets rid of all this not uh, this uh, Farmageddon nonsense. Farmageddon, I love my goodness. <laughs> You're making me giggle. This is great. But I, I, how'd you yeah. get those kids to do it, though? How'd you get those kids to change? About children, I just think you have to be a role model. You're when when they're little, you're in control. They're going to eat, but once they're sort of out of the house. They're going to eat what they eat, but they should at home eat what you want them to eat. And eventually they come around just how you have to have. I'm sure you found that with your daughter. Yeah, yeah. They get it. Um, And anyway, we have 10 grandchildren and. All of them are plant-based, and it's very interesting because as they get older, and we our oldest is 23, they kind of get more and more and more kind of uh, passionate about it. Well, I think the other thing that helps is when Jane uh, uh, has made up a slide of all of the chronic diseases that were in Anne's family and were my family and our parents and grandparents, and somehow in the shakedown cruise with our children they have all come to recognize well what, i don't their, think that kids what, the, what their grandparents i disagree died, died. oh no this is for the older ones okay. and they uh, you you think that somebody in their <clears throat> 20s would not be aware of that but boy it, it really began to strike home and i think you, it, it's it's not to it's not to be underrated because as it stands now almost everybody in america even though they're fine, fit, and healthy when they're in their 50s, they're going to start to crumble from chronic illness. And uh, it doesn't have to be. So, Ann, what were you saying you disagreed with? Oh, that I, I think just, I, I think children uh, really probably through 20s feel as if they're going to live forever. And this is happening to somebody else. So I'm not so sure that it, Unless it does happen in their family, and then they begin to become well, a little no, more aware. I, I would, take, but, I would inter- interject to something, because here we now know 
at least in, when you're talking and you're having meals together enough as a family, some of these uh, studies that I am aware of have been shared with our children. And for instance, look at the GIs who died in, in Korea. That at, by age 20, they already had gross evidence of coronary disease. They could see my father had his first heart attack at 43. They're from that same genetic pool. They did another one of those autopsy studies in 1999, looking at young women and men between the ages of 17 and 34 who died of accidents, homicides, and suicides, and the disease is ubiquitous. Not enough for their cardiac events yet, but there it is. We start making this illness as children. And you look at, sadly, that if you autopsy people, youngsters in their who are 11 and 12 years of age, they're already, there's the fatty streaking, the disease is underway. And, you know, I actually use those exact examples with my families that have little ones. So I had a 7-year-old that had clutch over 200, a fatty liver, elevated liver enzymes. I mean, the whole gamut. It all went away within two months of a plant-based diet. But it took some convincing to get the family. But my own family, my kids were 13, 15, 16, and 18 when I switched over, literally overnight. Like, overnight. Took everything out of the house. My poor husband. (laughs) But my daughter, who's 23 now... She just now switched over. She saw the science. I made her watch Forks Over Knives. She's starting medical school this fall, but it took her boyfriend coming on board because I went after him once she got, I was like, oh, someone else in Toledo. <laughs> and he switched over. He feels great. She started doing it. She's like, oh, okay. <laughs> Killing me. But um, yeah, that's what I'm, I'm always looking for, helpful ways of convincing those kids who I, you know, because I tell Emily, Emily, my, my real father had his first heart attack at 38. I'm like, you don't have genetics to screw with it. You can't be messing around. So I'm always looking for any, any ideas, you know, is it the environment or somewhere to move them in that direction. So. It's really important not to be discouraged, and so many people are, because you have so much more influence than you realize, mm-hmm. so much uh, I mean, people will go along, and then suddenly something will happen, and they will know how to, what to do, what to do next, because they observed it in, in you. So I think those people who feel discouraged don't. Just carry on, because you're passing on a really strong message. I, I agree. Actually, I, I call it veggie crack. I tell people, like, you have to get better because if you eat your vegetables, you get better, and that makes me feel better. I get a dopamine rush, and it's my next it's my next hit. Come on. I need you to get better. <laughs> so as far as – that's awesome. What have you found the most troubling as far as our current society and, and physicians or families or – what what do you feel would maybe would make the greatest impact? Like what can we do to put more wind in the sails of our of our movement to get better you know health through eating this way? It has to be it has to be taught in medical school and it has to be taught in postgraduate training. People have got to suddenly come and become aware. Right now, some of the medical schools are there uh, is where the other most vigorous not a, I don't like the word opponents, <clears throat> but. They are really where so much positively could be done. But when medical schools are run by the pharmaceutical industry or have a major role of contributing the dollars, it's really hard to squeeze this into the curriculum. But it is absolutely essential. There is just nothing as powerful as this. Do you know of any curriculum that would be available for like someone like me who could go into a medical school? So my daughter... Um, she got accepted to a few medical schools, but she chose to go to my alma mater. So I think I have a little bit of a, you know, back at Texas Tech. Um, 
is there a curriculum somewhere that you, you think we could use to create a program for medical schools for physicians who are willing to go and try and, you know, get put our foot in the door and go? I've heard there's one in Maine. I've heard there's one in Louisiana uh, that has been. And, no, but that's not a, I, I don't know how far he's gotten yet with that. Hmm. Okay. The, yeah. Cool. So now as far as, are there, because you, you actually had people come to you for specifically for this, correct? Or yes. Yes. Neil Bernard also may have some ideas on yeah. that. He, I think he's, uh, he's got. With Georgetown. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to, I'm interviewing him in a few weeks, so. Yeah, yo, he, he's amazing. Okay. Oh, he's lovely. I love him. Um, so as far as families, you know, you have patients that come and see you. What are the, any advice for those who maybe say, I want to do this, but my family doesn't, or my husband doesn't want to, or my kids. What do you do? Because that's a real sticking point. That seems to be the secondary besides of, I don't know, you know, how to cook this well, way. It's the yeah, family one dynamic. Of, one of the things that helps, <clears throat> usually the, if, the, if the parents are involved, it's one of them that has uh, the disease. And, and that's the reason that we want always the spouse to come because sometimes the spouse isn't sure that this is correct. or But as soon as the spouse gets five and a half hours and learns all about this, now suddenly you've got both the heads of the household who are on board with this. Now, as far as the children, all they would have to do is get to get their toe in the water is to see the movie Forks Over Knives some evening, have it at home. It's on Netflix. They can do that, and really, uh, now there's some other newer ones that have come on board. Uh, what the Health, uh, Cowspiracy. What uh, the Health is terrific. Yeah. But, yeah. but I tell you, Forks Over Knives has okay. made a difference in yeah. so many people because suddenly people look at that and they, they don't think, it's not saying you should do this. They suddenly, oh, I should do this. It's not, it comes from within. Right, exactly. I, Forks Over Knives was the, one of the first things that I, I learned about when I started searching because there was nowhere for physicians to go, at least for me, in 2012. So as far as uh, doctors, because I've had doctors contact me to help them move forward like doing this, do you have any suggestions other than Dr. Bernard's site or maybe the American College of Lifestyle Medicine? Should they come and hang out with you at the Cleveland Clinic and watch your five-and-a-half-hour presentation as well? I mean, what do you suggest? Lots and lots of them well, do. Every, every session we have a number of nurse uh, practitioners, physicians. Uh, In fact, next time we're having a whole bevy of, of one from one place. They're bringing, aren't they bringing uh, the whole hospital, it sounds like. No, wow. no, no. <laughs> a large group. Yeah. Now, have you seen, have you, do you feel like this is actually making a change? Like, you know, do you feel like we're reaching closer and closer to really creating change, or is it just kind of? Uh, if you compare where we are now compared to where we were uh, 34 years ago, it's light years of difference. Oh, yeah. Remember, uh, I put together the first national conference on the elimination and prevention of heart disease in 1991 in Tucson. Nobody ever heard of that, and we had 100 people. Nothing happened. So six years later, we did it again. This time in Disney, we had 500 uh, healthcare uh, practitioners, physicians, nurses, and uh, 
nowadays. Uh, there's seven or eight of these, it uh, seems to me, almost uh, every year, which is so positive. Yeah, it's exciting. I mean, now you can turn on your t your computer and find a recipe for absolutely anything that you want to cook and, you know, how to do it with a video showing you step by step. I mean, if you want to have meringue, you can see that you can take chickpea liquid and create this aquafaba that blows your mind, although, you know, you should do it rarely because it's obviously loaded with sugar. <clears throat> but everything is out there available. And what is your favorite recipe to cook? Rice and beans. <laughs> Any With all toppings. What, what type of toppings? Uh, uh, mango toppings, corn salsas. Um, what else? Peppers. Peppers. Peas. You know, just water, uh, just water, 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 just every vegetable on top. Just like you do with yeah. with pizza. But right, I love um, restuffed potatoes. I mean, we we don't eat very fancily though. Yes, we do. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, what's the most? What's the your favorite recipe, Dr. Esselstyn? That and cooks for you? Well, I think the uh, uh, anything that uh, that has as a start a sort of a grain base, it has to be, and whether it's wheat berries, rye berries, whether never cook wheat berries, quinoa, quinoa <laughs> uh, rice, and then uh, on top of that, put this uh, all this wonderful mixture of vegetables and uh, I mean it's just uh, it steals the eye right out of your head and then uh, the end has such a wonderful array of legal salad dressings and uh, that's also a very exciting oh, one of the wonderful things is all the balsamic vinegars that you can get in different flavors mm -hmm. that's really nice and the other fabulous thing that I we found gets people feeling they can do this is when they learn about the Yonana machine that you can put frozen bananas and get banana soft serve or mango soft serve out of that and that you really can eat ice cream and uh, that's and, and then put some nice flavored balsamic vinegars even chocolate on it and you have a real treat the other thing is to find out where your favorite places that they will make up a pizza for you and when you do make it up be sure that you have a, a marvelous uh, array of many many different vegetables and then the tomato sauce and if you can find it with a thin crust that's even the best but you know that all of those things are going to be laden with salt but the other thing that we love was uh, Essie loves his breakfast and he has his breakfast every day never misses and he often has it as dessert at night tell them about your breakfast well i'm like old-fashioned quaker oats then i never cook i use them as a dry cereal with oat milk with raisins and with bananas and with blackberries blueberries strawberries raspberries and my god that is just such a delicious feast flaxseed and flaxseed meal yeah and I love steel cut oats, 
and I'll tell you my recipe because it's so good. Please do. One half cup of steel cut oats, two cups of water, one fourth teaspoon of turmeric, one two tablespoons of nutritional yeast. It gives it a sort of a creaminess. And one teaspoon of sriracha hot sauce. But then half a cup of shiitake mushrooms sliced and then about two cups of kale cut in bite-sized pieces. And I cook it, bring it to a boil and cook it for about eight minutes. It's divine. Oh, wow. I would, I'm going to totally put that on the, the show notes. That, <laughs> I would have never thought of eating that for breakfast. Oh, it's fantastic. Oh, my and goodness. It starts you out without being a sort of sweet. It's a yeah. nice. A nice. Uh, a, a nice Eat your berries later in the day. Sure. Absolutely. So I have a, a, a question. You both were, uh, you celebrated, you said your 56th wedding anniversary this last Sunday. Congratulations, by the way. And um, I would like you guys to share, if you don't mind, what is your favorite thing about each other? <laughs> my, my favorite thing is Anne's patience, understanding, loyalty, and integrity. Well, I have to say, actually, speaking of patience, so today we were out taking down parts of an old swing that had broken. And he decided that he was going to undo the knot. This knot that had, you know, for years and years, it had gotten so tight. And he was going to do it. He was going to treat it as if it were a parathyroid. And he was going to undo it. And so I sat below him on his ladder while he tried and tried. And he would have me hand him different tools and he finally actually did do it on one side of the swing. But then on the second side, he worked and worked and worked. And he finally said, okay, give me the knife. <laughs> but True <he> surgeon. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious, do you guys have a favorite patient that you together have worked with? with i mean our favorite patient stories of recovery i mean do you any of those stand out in your mind there's every a, story yeah, is amazing there's a multitude of those I, it would be it would be totally unfair to ever ever say that one is more selling to the other because all the ones that were we really precious we, we share or treasure are really uh, these are people that were headed for the gravestone early and uh, when, it, when they can turn that around it's uh, it's it's so empowering for them. What's what, uh, one story is, is interesting because it relates to something you asked, and that is the story of Jim McNamara. Because his story, maybe you tell it, um, shows the power that you have over people when you don't even know it. Um, you want to tell? I mean, well, this, Jim, this isn't that he's the favorite, but mm -hmm. this is a very good example of your story. Well, he, he, I wrote a paper in. Uh, July of 2014. I wrote two that month. One was on 200 patients. The other was on just three. And the one reason I wrote this about those three patients is they were absolutely a classic example of how absolutely futile and uh, erroneous the present Farmageddon and the uh, mechanical approach to what is really a biological uh, uh, disease. 
And uh, the, the one that we're just chatting about now is um, Jim McNamara, who comes, he, he was uh, somebody who came to our, or comes to our seminar and, and is one of the presenters there because about six years ago, he had, uh, no, actually about 10 years ago, he had his first stroke on his right side, his right carotid was completely occluded, and they tried operating, and excuse me, it wasn't completely occluded, they tried operating, and of course the operation failed, and now it's completely occluded, but he, he did pretty well on his left side, his left carotid, but now he began to get this pretty darn sufficient pain in his left calf, severe claudication, Started off kind of mild, and it got to the point where he was just in agony, trying to go to bed at night. And they said, "Well, we got to operate on that leg." So, but before we can operate on the leg, we better operate on this one remaining carotid because that's getting pretty uh, blocked up. Well, he thought that was really going to be the end of it, so he crossed his fingers, and and everything did go okay with that left carotid operation. But now they started on his leg. First operation failed, second operation failed, third operation failed, and the fourth. So now he was told, you know, your disease is just a little bit too aggressive. It doesn't uh, really, you're going to have to just stick with uh, drugs or something. Well, his wife somehow found out about our program, and uh, he came, and he just absolutely, within three months, all of his claudication had disappeared. He can now walk nonstop as far as he wants. But what has been so striking about his uh, performance in this is what has happened to the rest of his family. Everybody in his family comes on board. He has an aunt who he hadn't seen in years or in their, their 80s who began to see, because they saw how wonderful it turned out for him. He lost his belly, he lost his pre-diabetic state, Everything about him looked trim and wonderful, and he was dancing. And so she was in her 80s. She began this, and her diabetes disappeared. And then he has this uh, wonderful story about a uh, a nephew of his he hadn't seen in three or four years who had uh, come down with a diagnosis of uh, in his mid 30s of diabetes, and he wrote this wonderful postcard to him saying, "Uncle Uncle Jimmy, I want you to know." how much your experience has meant to me. Because six months ago, after I had this diagnosis, I adopted your diet, and my diabetes has completely disappeared. And he feels so absolutely the, the enjoyment that he derives from helping others by sharing his story is really quite a, a wonderful thing to see. I think that's the one thing that I, when I speak to other physicians or uh, other people who spread this message on a regular basis, is that when we adopted the diet, the people that we interact with, like you and Anne and Rip and Dr. Greiger and Dr. Bernard, they're just the most kind, amazing, uh, inspiring people. It's just such, a, it's such an amazing tribe to belong to. I don't, I'm sure you've had that same experience. You are very much a leader in that. Thank you. You're so kind. Oh my goodness, I, I'm getting goosebumps you said that. <laughs> um, it's just, uh, it's such a, a lovely thing to do. And I, I can't imagine a physician not wanting to spread this information. I had a friend that was a family practice doc diagnosed with diabetes about five years earlier and she was on insulin 
uh, cholesterol meds. She's younger than me. She's in her early 40s. And I went after her for a year, showed her her patients that I helped and other patients. And she's like, oh, I can't do it, whatever. And finally, I convinced her, and she did it. She goes, I'm going to do it for six weeks. Okay, Lori, will you leave me alone? And I was like, yeah, prove me wrong. I haven't been proved wrong yet. Off insulin in five days. You know, of course, she lost all the weight, feel better. And then she's calling me up. She goes, why can't we just yell this from the rooftops? I, I understand your passion. I just... If there's just a way to give them a little piece of this, do you have any any um, advice on helping us reach that professional, that doctor, to help them grasp it or understand it? Or, I mean, what can we do? I mean, I just sometimes it's so frustrating. Well, I think what happens, <clears throat> what we have found is also very powerful, is that uh, my daughter Jane uh, has instituted the first national conference for heart disease for women. And one of the things that she's had is that makes it, I think, very powerful. She's had uh, women physicians who themselves have had the illness and turn it around present. One is Saray Stancic. Saray is making a film on her own multiple sclerosis victory. Where she just, and that was such a powerful story. Color blue. Such a yeah, such a powerful story. And the other one was Monica Agarwal, who was right down there in, in Florida. And Monica had this marvelous story about rheumatoid arthritis. And when I was recently with them both at that meal, we were talking, and I said, "You've got to make me a, a promise that you're going to. It doesn't do it any good just to have you talk about this." I said, "You." You have got to write this up in the peer-reviewed scientific literature. And Saray, you've got to write up Monica, and Monica, you've got to write up Saray. That don't write, you can't write up yourself. So, and uh, so they promised they did, and I'm about to call them and say, where's that paper? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, another, I, I mean, another, um, oh, no, I, I know, now I don't know what I was gonna say. <laughs> Something about helping. Yes, I think one interesting thing, and that is that if you, like, you, what made your friend do it? Pete, you just have to get people to try it. And I think Rip's new book called The Seven Day Rescue Diet is very powerful because seven days is something that everybody can do. And that book is really, really close to Essence mm -hmm. Program. And if, if, if you could even just tell those reluctant people, try this for seven days. You don't have to do it any longer. Then they all feel they can at least do that. And sometimes that just puts you over the, the you know, gets you, gets you in the right ballpark. That's an excellent idea. Hey, so I know you are Rip's parents, right? And I, I reached out by email to someone in Rip's. Can you put a good word in for me if I ask him for an interview, please? Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and he... He, oh, the other person is that Rip <laughs> and Jane, Jane has done all Rip's recipes. Okay. So Jane. And this, they have a new cookbook coming out uh, next year called the Engine 2 Recipe Book. And so, um, yeah, for sure. And, and, and you could get Jane too. She's great. Oh. She has wonderful ideas for you. Oh, I'd love to. Oh my goodness. This is wonderful. So, um, is there, and I know I promised I would only keep you a period of time, so I was just wondering if you guys have any 
advice or last suggestions for someone in the audience that would be that you you know something that you think would just might click for someone or help someone it's like okay i'm going to do it well i would be remiss if i didn't say first how i want to congratulate you from what you're doing and the effort you're trying to do to extend this and uh, anyone in your audience who is a physician or a nurse or a healthcare worker who wants to come to our uh, intensive counseling seminar as my guest in Cleveland, they're more than welcome to do so. I think the clinic does charge them, be uh, completely upfront about this, the clinic does charge them about $40 because they, for the, for the, for the uh, collection of material that we present them with, and also uh, for the free lunch. Wonderful. Anne, did you have any advice? Um, no, I, my only advice is just uh, just do it. And you know, as everybody's, <laughs> as everybody's getting older, it, sure, um, it will sure avoid the pitfalls that you hit starting about late 40s, maybe, even 40. <laughs> And certainly, as you get up higher, yeah. Well, there is there is some there is some fascinating studies that show, uh, for instance, uh, this was a study of 904,000 patient years of follow-up, and they were particularly interested in the the persons who were age 55, men and women who had absolutely optimal risk factors. That was. They weren't hypertensive, they weren't diabetic, they weren't smokers, they didn't have high cholesterol. Everything just was optimal at age 55, eating the typical American way. They followed them for 30 years. At the end of 30 years, 30% of the women, 40% of the men had now come down with heart disease. In other words, the typical Western diet will get you sooner or later. What's the good of saying you're fine, everything is going great when you're 55? then crumble when you're 85. That's crazy. Well, I tell you, you're an, an amazing example of both of you of what you are in your early 80s, right? 83, 4? Oh, we, we don't want to talk no, too much no, about no. He's not that old. 82? <laughs> 80? Huh? No. I mean, Let's just say that I, I, I was graduated from Yale in 1956, and then they, <laughs> then they can do the math. Okay. That's wonderful. We don't take medicine, and we exercise a lot, and uh, and I think exercise is important. You know, foods first by far, but certainly you got to exercise. I agree, and I and I tell people, let's start with the diet, but then you'll feel so good you'll want to exercise. So it, it follows suit. Well, <laughs> exercise is certainly a wonderful bonus, but remember, there there are more people that reach the age of 100 in Okinawa than anywhere else, and yet. I don't know of any gymnasiums throughout Okinawa. But they move. But they are but they are on the move, yeah. You are exactly right. And with that, I just want to say one thing. At the, I like to end the podcast with acknowledgement of my guests and say thank you so much. You have no idea what you're – I've been looking forward to this all day. And uh, But just say thank you to all the patients. I don't know how many thousands, maybe millions, that you've affected and saved lives, both you and Anne and – uh, and for inspiring people like me who want to carry on this message and help you, you know, help people. So thank you very much. Oh, listen, anytime anybody has their origins in, in Rifle, Colorado, that, that actually turns us on. 
Sorry. All right. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, you two, and uh, take care. And I'm like, I'm gonna hold you to that rip uh, interview. I'm gonna, I'm gonna drop some names. 